lecture is taken from the graduate course Introduction to Charitable Planning at Texas Tech University. To download the PowerPoint slides for this lecture, or to take the online quiz for this lecture, or to find out more about the Graduate Certificate in Charitable Financial Planning at Texas Tech University, go to EncourageGenerosity.com. look at the topic of what do we know about who makes charitable plans and charitable bequests. Uh, most all of this is going to be a summary of uh, research that I have uh, conducted and um, at this point uh, uh, most all of it has been uh, published in academic journals in one form or another now. Uh, and so this is really just going to be a summary of uh, what we've learned through that process uh, and, uh, and some discussion as to how that might be important, especially if you're in a planned giving context where you're looking at uh, what are the kind of clients who are going to be interested in this kind of planning, what are the kind of clients who are actually going to be generating uh, charitable bequests for, uh, for charity. So let's start out with the difference between some previous studies that have been done on this topic uh, and the uh, uh, and the study that, uh, that I spent time uh, working with. Uh, to this point, most of the studies on the topic of uh, charitable planning uh, have been one of two kinds. Either they've been a one-time survey, which is where we just uh, uh, ask people, you know, do you have a plan today? Uh, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the issues with that is whenever you have a survey about charitable giving, that the whole survey is about charitable giving, you inherently get worried about what we call non-response bias. Uh, that is, if I call you up on the phone and say, uh, hey, I'm doing a survey from University of such and such uh, on charitable giving, would you mind taking a few minutes to answer a couple of questions? If you are not a donor, if you don't give, you are more likely to say no thanks and hang up the phone. And so because of that, we've got this issue with normal surveys, if the entire survey is about charitable giving, that our non-response bias uh, could uh, mess up our numbers. That is, you know, we might do a survey and come back and say, oh, you know, 95% of all people make charitable gifts. Well, no. 95% um, of the people who chose to answer a survey about charitable giving make charitable gifts, which is a much more believable reality than that 95% of all people make charitable gifts. So, so that's always a concern. Uh, so we actually prefer surveys that are not about charitable giving. They're about something else, but they just throw in a question uh, or, or, or two about charitable giving because it limits that uh, non-response bias um, as compared with uh, surveys where the entire survey is about charitable giving. So that's the, uh, that's the one source of information has been surveys that have been done one time. The other source of information is information about after-death distributions. Now we do have good information on after-death distributions for taxable estates. So if the estates are large enough, you know, in recent years, three and a half million, if they're large enough to be a taxable estate, then we have good numbers uh, on, uh, on, uh, on the amount of charitable giving taking place. Uh, those, uh, eventually, they, they, there's a delay, but they come out from the IRS. There have been a few studies, they're relatively rare, but some studies in economics journals where somebody will actually go into the probate records of a county and uh, do a single county probate record studies. And they'll look at, for example, uh, charitable giving within all the wills that are probated. And so those are interesting because they pick up the uh, estates that are not big enough to be taxable. And since they're not big enough to be taxable, they'll never show up on the IRS uh, database. Um, but uh, this does pick them up. Now, it, it's not perfect for two reasons. One, of course, you're only doing a single county. Uh, and so it's sort of hard to project how that would project to the whole country. And the other is that, of course, probate records don't catch much of the, uh, of the actual uh, transfers that take place. So let's say, for example, you have a, uh, an IRA and you list a beneficiary on that IRA of a child. 
or you have a life insurance policy and the beneficiary on that life insurance policy is a child, um, none of those things go through the probate process. Okay? The only things that go through probate are things that are owned solely in the name of the, of the decedent and they have to go through the probate process to get that title changed. And so because of it, probate leaves out a lot of, uh, a lot of assets uh, that, have, um, that have these other beneficiary designations on it. And it's actually quite common in a number of states that are such a thing as a beneficiary deed. So you can, in fact, even have real estate that transfers without going through the probate process. So that's kind of the patchwork of what, what we have up to this point. Some one-time surveys of people who are alive and some post-death uh, information on distributions that actually took place, either for taxable estates where we do have good information or uh, for non-taxable estates we have some information from uh, a handful of single county probate studies. Now the current study is different because it, it, it does a combination of these things. The first thing that's different about this study is that it's longitudinal. That is person is asked in the context of a half day long survey, they're asked about their charitable planning. Okay. Two years later, same survey, uh, maybe some additional questions, but they're asked that same question again. Two years later, they're asked that same question again. And that continues for as long as that person's alive. Every two years, they get asked this series of questions, which includes uh, the, uh, the question about charitable planning. Now this is part of what's called the health and retirement study. So most of the questions are either financial or health related uh, and it's a massive study. It's actually uh, out of the University of Michigan and the grant from the federal government, the most recent grant to continue and expand this survey, largest grant in the history of the University of Michigan uh, for uh, any of these kinds of, uh, of survey projects. So it's a big deal. The other thing that's different is that this survey actually tracks people after they have died and goes back to find the uh, closest relatives or caretakers to uh, get, a, get a survey about um, why they died and, and cause of last death. And among other things, they ask about where did the money actually go? You know, we have this plans that they were making, but then ultimately they also track people and all the way to the grave and, and beyond, so to speak, because they ask where did the money go. And if the thing's still in probate, if it hasn't paid out yet, every two years they come back to the uh, next of kin uh, and they will ask, has all the money been distributed yet? Where did it go? So we can make this comparison over time, uh, which is a big thing, and we can also compare over time with what actually happened in the distribution after death. So what are some findings come out from this? Well, um, uh, before we get to the findings, uh, the, the, the point of this different kind of survey is that it allows us to answer new questions. We can answer questions about changes, not just who has charitable plans, but when do they add the plans and when do they drop the plans? Well, that's a big deal if you're looking at uh, helping somebody with their planning or trying to raise money through plan giving. We want to know not just who has them and who doesn't have them, but when did they add them and when did they drop them? And then, of course, we can compare intentions versus outcomes. This is what people said they were going to do during life. What actually happened after they died? Uh, some of the details of this uh, survey. It has been nationally representative of the over age 50 population since 1998. Um, now technically, uh, they add in a new cohort every six years. And so uh, the way that it works is that in 1998, it's uh, nationally representative of the over 50 population. In 2000, it's representative of the 52 and above population. Uh, in 2002, it's representative of the 54 uh, and above population and then in 2004 a new cohort gets added in and it is once again representative of the over 50 population. But just for sort of a short reference we'll say it's, it's over 50 is who they're dealing with there. It's a massive survey. Over 20,000 people per survey. Uh, it starts with in-person interviews uh, and in some cases this will be in later years will be followed up with by phone 
person gets comfortable with that and they're used to answering the questions. Um, although in some cases it's not, it, it can't be followed up with by phone. Over the last couple of waves, they've added in some health measures that actually have to be conducted in person. Uh, things like uh, weighing the person and uh, uh, giving them a strength test, and a, there's even a blood test that comes along with it. Uh, it was started in 1992, so we have a fair amount of data, and uh, again, every two years. And uh, the questions we're going to be looking at are within a much larger set of questions. The Health and Retirement Study has, has many, many questions. Respondents are all paid to do this, uh, and they uh, stay in it um, ideally for, for life. All right, so what are some things we found? First question, what share of people over 50 in the U.S. have made provisions for any charities in their will or trust? So if you just ask people, do you have a plan right now today in your will or trust that uh, leaves money to a charity? What percentage are we going to see? Uh, we're going to see this percentage. 5.7% of the over 50 population in the U.S., has made charitable plans. Now this is the weighted number, so we're talking about nationally representative. This is actually not just the percentage from this sample, this is the weighted percentage to project to the national level. And so we would expect that 5.7% of all people in the United States over age 50 uh, in the year 2006 when this was done would say that they currently have a charitable plan in their will or trust. Now this is a relatively significant figure if you consider, uh, depending upon which survey you look at, you know, two-thirds, 80%, 85% of people make charitable gifts during life. And you compare that with this number, 5.7% are planning to leave a gift at death, and you see that there is a big difference. Let's take a look at uh, one of the reasons why that is. 5.7% have um, charitable plans. 56.1% have no planning documents at all. The majority of over age 50 people in the United States have no estate planning documents in the sense that they have no wills, they have no trusts to replace a will. And so why do the majority of people not have charitable plans? Well, it's because they don't have plans. And guess what? If you don't have plans, I can pretty much tell you, you don't have charitable plans because you've got to have plans first. Only 38%, 38.2% of the population, over age 50 population, has a, has a plan, but that plan does not include a charitable component. So this is really an issue where for plan giving officers, in many cases, it's just getting the clients planned. Getting them to plan is a, a significant barrier. It is the barrier for, well, for the majority of, uh, of uh, people in the United States over age 50. What about not just looking at the general population, what about looking at those people who are donors, people who currently give? What share of the over 50 charitable donors who are already giving more than $500 a year indicate that they have a charitable estate plan? Here we look at this number, and of course it's a little bit higher. 9.4% of current donors giving over $500 a year have a charitable estate plan. And while that number is higher, it's still in some ways is even more shocking that over 90% of donors who are involved and active and giving, giving over 500 bucks a year, over 90% of them, when they die at their death, there will be no transfers to charity. In fact, the only thing that will happen is that their annual gifts to charity will stop. This, uh, in, in one of the first articles that came out from this, uh, a reviewer had a question about whether or not it may be possible that, that the numbers aren't quite so stark, that maybe even though, uh, as we looked at in the last slide, only 9.4% of donors over the age of 50 have a charitable estate plan today, maybe by the time they get around to dying, they're going to have put one into place, right? So we went back, took a look at that, and here's what we found. 
We did this two different ways. We did a projection based upon age uh, and gender and mortality. Basically saying, okay, people are, have an increased likelihood of planning as they get older, so what's the likelihood that, that this probability for planning is going to happen before they die? And basically projecting that out. Uh, and then the other way we did it to try to see what was the percentage going to be at death was we actually tracked actual post-death distributions of people who were in this, uh, this survey and had died. Uh, and at that time there was about... Uh, 6,000 or so who had died. Uh, and in both cases, it gave us numbers fairly similar. Uh, and you can wiggle it a little bit, depending on which methodology you're, you're using. But the bottom line result is this. 88% to 90% of donors who are currently giving more than $500 a year over age 50 will die with no charitable estate plan. So these are charitable people making charitable gifts and they will, by and large, 9 out of 10 of them, are going to die with no charitable estate plan. Now, if you are a fundraiser, there's two different ways you can look at this. You can look at this as, you mean 90% of our donors are going to die without leaving a gift? And that's true. That means when they die, that gift income just stops. Nothing good about it, no bonuses, just gift income is over. The uh, other way to look at it is that if you're focused on doing charitable planning, that you have a wide open market. Just from the current donors that already support your organization, 90% of them are going to die without leaving any gift to your organization. So there you've got somebody who's got charitable intent. They're already making charitable gifts. They already care about your organization, but they need to have that next step where they wind up uh, making a plan that leaves something to the charitable organization. So uh, a glass half empty versus glass half full way of looking at things. Okay, so that's the situation. Um, how do we predict, how do we project who is most likely to have a charitable estate plan? So, so let's take a look at, let's just look at people who are charitable. Okay. So we're only looking at people who are already given. They're giving $500 a year or more. Um, they're over age 50, and they have an estate plan. Okay. So these are people who are planned and who are donors. And we want to know among those who are already donors and who are already planned, what factors are most likely to predict that they are going to have a charitable component in their plan? Um, what was most important? What do you think? Just age? Education, wealth, income, well, those things were all important, but it turned out something else was much more important. Take a look at this chart. Among donors, giving over $500 a year with an estate plan. If we just look at one factor, that is family status, it tells us a whole lot. The percentage of this group that indicated they had a charitable estate plan, if they had no children, no offspring, 50%, massive number. Take it the other end, if they had grandchildren, then less than 10% had left a charitable gift. Now again, this is among those who have a plan and who are our current donors. Um, but it gives you the sense in which this one factor is so important. If you want to know who's going to make a charitable plan and you only can know one thing about that donor, what do you want to know? you want to know, do they have kids? If they, have, if they don't have kids, 50-50 chance they're going to be a charitable donor. If they've got kids, uh, not much chance. If they have kids and grandkids, uh, you might as well forget about it, right? 90.2% chance that they're not going to have a charitable estate plan. All right. Well, that's sort of summary statistics. Let's take a look at regression. Uh, and the idea of regression here, uh, most of you are familiar with it, but the idea is what we're attempting to do is to compare otherwise identical people, right? So, for example, if we want to, uh, if we want to look at the effect of education, we are going to look at two different people who have the same income, who have the same wealth, who have the same family structure, and the only difference is education. 
Because otherwise, if you just look at education, you might say, oh, this is an effect of education, when in fact, it's, it's an effect of having higher income, which can sometimes come from uh, education, um, depending upon you know, what you choose to be educated in. Uh, so, so that's the idea of regression. We're comparing apples to apples. We're comparing otherwise identical people that only differ in this one characteristic. And so that allows us to isolate the impact, the association of that characteristic with the outcome we're looking at. And in this case, the outcome we're looking at is whether or not they have planned to make a charitable gift in their estate plan. So let's take a look at some of the results. Um, and, and here, uh, for those that are interested in the technical side of it, this is a probit model, and then I've adjusted the uh, probit coefficients into, uh, uh, into uh, percentage points um, so that uh, it's sort of more comprehensible by an uh, by a, uh, audience of, of uh, normal humans. So if we're looking at the likelihood of having a charitable plan, again, comparing otherwise identical individuals, here is the impact uh, of... The, uh, of these uh, various factors. Now keep in mind, of course, this is a behavior that only about 5%, 5 to 6% of the population engages in, right? So if we have a factor that increases that by one percentage point, that's a massive increase considering that, you know, normally only about 5% of people do it. And so if you increase that by one, then it's 6% of people doing it. So when you see something such as a graduate degree here, uh, increasing the likelihood of having a charitable plan by 4.2 percentage points, that is a, that is a, 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 that is a dramatic magnitude uh, of the impact that it has. Uh, giving to charity, uh, significant, not a surprise there. Actually, it's somewhat of a surprise that actually having a graduate degree is more uh, predictive uh, of a, uh, having a charitable plan than, than actually being a donor. Uh, volunteering, that also helps. Um, having a college degree versus high school. Um, there's a few health factors there. Uh, age, positive association there. Uh, and we see that actually with general charitable giving as well. Age has a positive association with the presence of charitable giving um, straight through until about age 75 or so, and then it starts to decline, um, which some of the research I'm working on now suggests is related to cognitive ability changes, uh, in particular those at the low end of the... Um, uh, cognitive ability. It's, it's probably because other people are taking over management of their financial uh, resources uh, and so they're not making charitable gifts on behalf of the person who's, um, who's no longer managing their own money. Uh, okay, so other things. Um, assets helps a little bit. Not that much really. Um, income, uh, not, uh, not statistically significant. Gender, not statistically significant. And then of course we get the, the, the big behemoth in the room. You know, we get the, the uh, presence of children versus no offspring or grandchildren versus no offspring. And you can see how having grandchildren versus somebody who is childless can outweigh a lot of these other factors. It is such a big magnitude of a factor. And just to sort of drive this home, if you are looking for somebody who is going to make a charitable gift in their estate and you're looking at person A who makes substantial charitable gifts, volunteers regularly, and has grandchildren, or person B who doesn't give to charity, doesn't volunteer, and has no children, who's more likely to leave a charitable estate gift? The answer is person B. Uh, the absence of children is such a massive factor in uh, charitable estate planning that it outweighs all of these, uh, many of these other uh, important characteristics. Uh, this was not just with this study. Um, this was, I've uh, worked with Christopher Baker a little bit on this, uh, in, uh, not in the data collection, but in uh, some implications of it in another context. Um, and uh, his finding from his dissertation, which looked at uh, 1,729 wills, uh, what he did is he went to one of the provinces in Australia and, uh, and uh, took a greater than 10% sample of all of the wills and the probate records from that, uh, um, from that province for a particular year. He found that Australian will makers without surviving children are 10 times more likely to make a charitable gift from their estate. So this is a, this is a, a, a cross-national comparison. We see the same uh, significance of this single factor. How did giving during life compare with post-death post transfers? 
So now we're going to compare the amount of money that's giving during, given during life with the amount of money that's given at death. So let's take a look at this chart. Uh, and this is for the deceased panel members, that is those who were in the survey, uh, you know, had gotten in at some point since 1992 and, uh, and had died, and that we'd been able to uh, find out where their stuff went after they died. Um, and what you see when we compare by offspring here is uh, if you look at, say, the second, um, the second column, average annual giving, or I guess that's the third column, uh, they give more, um, a little bit uh, more about, uh, uh, not, not quite three times more than those with children or grandchildren. You know, there's a couple, uh, a couple reasons for that. Um, one is just the absence of uh, children gives you... Uh, um, may, uh, you're not spending money on them, so maybe you have some more disposable cash. Uh, but then when we compare average estate giving, we're seeing uh, not just a threefold increase, but as compared to, say, for example, those with children, that's almost an 11-fold increase uh, as, uh, as compared to the other categories. And so if we, if we take the estate gift multiple, now, now what I'm talking about here is how many times a person's annual giving are they leaving to the charity at death? Okay. Are they leaving one year's worth of annual giving, two years, three years worth of annual giving at death? And on average, what you see here is that those with no children are leaving uh, more than 12 and a half times uh, their annual giving at death, whereas those with grandchildren are leaving less than three times their annual giving uh, at death. And so if you, for example, if, if you are going through a donor database and you want to know who should we target, uh, you certainly you want to look at how much they're giving now. There is a relationship between how much they're giving now and what they're going to give at death. But then what you might want to do if you happen to know the presence of children or not is to apply these multiples. And so, for example, if you get somebody who, is, uh, who has no children, then uh, as compared to somebody with grandchildren uh, in this over age 50 population, uh, you would take their charitable, current charitable giving and multiply it by a factor of, of, a, of about, uh, what would that be, about 4, 12.6 divided by 2.9, um, and then that would give you the equivalent uh, for uh, somebody who had grandchildren uh, in terms of their average annual giving and what you would expect to see in the estate giving. So again, it's, it's a major factor. Uh, it is... Uh, to be considered, and we can uh, we can quantify it here. And it's important to point out that we can quantify it because you can't do all of your uh, planned giving based upon childless individuals. There's just not that many of them, right? But you can um, you can use this estate gift multiple, multiply that number by their average annual giving, and and you can get a uh, a comparable projected number for the amount of state uh, giving that you would anticipate out of that person. Of course, those last numbers dealt with uh, annual giving to all organizations. And, and you, if you represent a particular organization, you're probably only just going to be looking at their giving to, to your individual organization. All right, so the next question is, why did people drop charitable plans? So remember, we can track people over time. If we track them over time, then we can, um, then we can uh, uh, look at what happened. You know, somebody was asked the question, do you have a charitable state plan? Oh, yeah. Two years later, do you have a charitable estate plan? Oh, yeah. Two years later, do you have a charitable estate plan? Oh, yeah. Two years later, do you have a charitable estate plan? No. Okay. We want to know what changed between those two, those two factors. Uh, what happened here? person says, yes, I've got one. Yes, I've got one. And then they say, no, they don't have one. What causes people to drop plans? Now, this could be a big deal. Because if you're representing a charity, and let's say you've got, and many charities do, you have one of these, uh, uh, these uh, donor recognition groups that is uh, recognizing donors who've indicated they've made a will uh, that names your charity. Uh, you might want to know what factors do we need to be concerned about? Uh, when do I need to get in touch with people who uh, maybe are going to change their mind? And what were the ma major factors? Uh, boy, you know, isn't this a shock? Uh, it's kind of a continuing theme here. Factors that trigger dropping the charitable plan. Uh, number one, uh, largest factor in magnitude was becoming a grandparent. Um, number two was becoming a parent. Now this could happen, these are over 50 population, but this uh, could happen also by marriage um, as, as well. 
Um, number three was stopping current charitable giving. Right? You have somebody who says, oh yeah, I've, I've left a gift to your charity, and then all of a sudden they quit giving to your charity. You would be concerned about that. Uh, it turns out you should be about seven times as concerned if you find out they ha now have grandkids. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, there's a minor factor here, which is a drop in self-rated health. This is sort of a concern that they're going to keep you in, uh, keep your charity in their charitable plan until they get sick, and then they're going to take you out. That's probably not um, good for your projected return. Some factors that didn't seem to matter, change in income, change in assets, change in marital status by itself. Um, and so this is kind of good. I mean, you know, you go through a big recession, you go through a big drop in the stock market. It seems to be that... Charitable plans are, are sticky upwards, so to speak. That as the market goes, uh, goes down, people don't say, oh, I've lost so much, I'm going to take out that charitable component. doesn't tend to be happening. Um, or if their, uh, if their income goes down, didn't really seem to have a, have a factor there. So, so that's positive uh, in terms of um, uh, keeping those charitable plans. Okay, let's look at the flip side of that. When did people add charitable plans? Uh, again, this is where you have somebody who says, no, I don't have a charitable plan. No, I don't have a charitable plan. And then, oh, yes, I have a charitable plan. Yes, I have a charitable plan. What, what led to that? Uh, well, you know, this is a big shocker, starting to make charitable gifts. If somebody was not donating to anybody before, all of a sudden they start donating. Uh, that is uh, also an indicator that they are more likely to have added a charitable plan. Uh, any improvement, an improvement in self-reported health uh, was a significant factor in adding a charitable plan. So you know, it sort of creates the scenario that would suggest that you know when people are um, when they are uh, in uh, improved health, then they're going to add you in, and when they're uh, in uh, failing health, they're going to take you out. Uh, again, sort of not not the way you would hope that to work as a charity. And then uh, you know for your final shocking news. The one factor that dramatically reduced the likelihood that a new charitable plan would be added is the addition of a first grandchild. If you have that taking place, the chances that during that same time that they're going to have added a charitable plan uh, are about nil. All right, so let's get to this last section. And this section is dealing with the question of how often did planned bequests produce a post-death gift? In other words, this is somebody that consistently says, yes, I have a charitable plan, yes, I have a charitable plan, and in their last interview before they died, they said, yes, I have a charitable plan. And in fact, the way that I did this study is to make sure that they'd said it more than once uh, in, in a row. And then they die, and then there's no charitable distribution. How often do we see this taking place? Well, here's the result. Most of the time, yeah, most of the time, people who report that they have a charitable estate plan at their death, they generate no charitable estate gift, okay? most of the time. What's the deal? What's going on here? Well, one part of the deal is sort of obvious you have somebody who has a surviving spouse. And when they say, yes, I have a, uh, I, I'm naming a charity in my will or trust, what they mean is, if I survive my spouse, I have a charity named. You know, they they uh, do the typical um, spouse estate plan, uh, everything to the surviving spouse, and then we do the planning after that. Um, which is, uh, you know, can be sort of tax problematic, but it is the most common. So, if we have a surviving spouse, if somebody says, yes, I have a uh, charitable estate plan, 71.5% uh, of the time after they die, there's going to be no charitable gift generated. Not a shock there. But yet, this doesn't really tell us the whole issue. Because even in those circumstances when there is no surviving spouse, 49.4% of the time, People with no surviving spouse who have said in their last interview that they did have a charitable estate plan did not generate any gifts for charity at their death. What's the problem? What is going on? 
what is causing this to be such a huge divergence between what people are saying and what's actually happening. Do we have mischievous heirs sneaking in and stealing the documents? Is it possible that people have these plans and then the heirs see the documents afterwards, set fire to the documents, and oh, well, there's no will. I guess we go through intestacy, so the closest relatives inherit. Is that what's happening? Let's take a look at some comparable numbers. Here I'm going to break it out between those who reported they had a trust and those who reported they had a will. And the uh, blue bars are the circumstances where they indicated they had a charitable plan. And the red bars are the circumstances where they indicated they had no charitable plan. Uh, and, and this is looking at the percentage of times, the percentage of the time when somebody says, I have a will or I have a trust. And then after they die, their next of kin says there was no will. There was no trust. And it turns out that that percentage in both cases is higher, is higher when the person had reported they had a will or a trust without a charitable plan. So this argues against the idea that the reason we're not seeing these charitable intentions fulfilled into charitable plans is because people are, are destroying the documents. Um, it, it looks like that's not the answer because there's actually more missing documents among the, uh, among the uh, plans that uh, the, the people that said they didn't have any charitable component. So, so that's probably not our answer. What about the choice of planning document? Does it matter if they're planning by a will versus planning by a trust? Here's a factor. Among the estates generating a charitable gift. Uh, let me restate that. <clears throat> when we look at the percentage of estates that actually generated a charitable gift, those where a person, when he or she was alive, reported that they had a trust with a charitable plan, 56% of the time, they generated a charitable gift. Those who reported when they are alive that they had a will with a charitable plan, 35% of the time, they generated a charitable gift after death. So what's going on here? Is this really document choice? Or, rather, is it just a matter of different kinds of people have trusts? versus the kind of people who have wills. You know, and in fact, it turns out, those two groups of people are actually different. If we take a look at this slide, it shows us how different they are. Um, those two groups of people are different primarily in that people who have a trust have more money. And so that may in fact be the driving factor, or we at least have to control for that. Okay, so we know these two groups are different. Trust group, more money, a little bit older, um, uh, slightly more likely to be married, all that sort of thing. So we have to go back to now regression. Remember, regression is where we're comparing otherwise identical people. So what we want to look at here is the effect of differences in trusts versus wills among those who have the same wealth, the same income, the same education, the same family structure. And here's what we find. In general, having a trust increases the likelihood of the charitable transfer by 14 to 15 percentage points after we control for all of these other characteristics. So we're looking at people who are otherwise identical in all of these factors, income, marriage, children, grandchildren, children, only uh, race, age, gender. They're otherwise identical. Simply the fact that they have a trust is going to make them about 14 to 15 percentage points more likely to actually deliver on that uh, indication during life that they had a charitable estate plan. Why are trusts more effective? They appear to be a more effective document. Well, here's a good indicator. Of those people who, when they are alive, said they had a charitable plan in their will, and they had no trust, in 40% of those cases, the will was never probated. This is a major driver for why we are not seeing these charitable uh, plans 
fulfilled? It's because the wills are never probated. Why are the wills never probated? Well, you need to know a little bit of estate planning to understand why a will is or is not probated. The only reason you need a will is to change the title on a piece of property that is owned only in the name of the decedent. If I have a beneficiary designation, like on a life insurance policy or, or even a stock brokerage account, I don't need to go through my will. I don't need to go through probate for that. In fact, I don't go through probate for that. If I have a bank account that is jointly owned with right of survivorship, I don't need to go through probate for that. I think what's happening here is that a lot of people have a will. And in that will it says 10% or $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever it goes to charity. But they don't realize that that will controls nothing. Right? Because if you've got all of your assets jointly titled or titled with beneficiaries, the will doesn't control anything. Uh, there are no assets that need to be retitled through the probate process. So I think that's a lot of what's taking place here. I don't think it's necessarily all just people are lying. I think it's in fact this idea that people signed a document that has a charitable uh, beneficiary in it. It's their will. So you ask them, do you have a charitable plan in your will or trust? The answer is yes. But it turns out that will doesn't control anything. No, no reason to even probate. Uh, how can we deal with that? Well, you know, look, the, the best way to deal with it is to work with clients on their whole estate plan and ask them what they want. Do you want 10% of only the probate property to go to charity or do you want 10% of your entire estate to go to charity? Right? If you want 10% of your entire estate to go to charity, it may mean that we need to change some of those beneficiary designations. Right? It may mean that even if we do have some assets going through uh, the will, that we want to change the way we draft the will. You know, it is possible to use something that says... I want a dollar amount equal to 10% of the difference between my gross estate for federal estate tax purposes. Oh, I think I need to change the language on this because gross estate um, is, uh, is, is going to be uh, subtracted uh, for uh, debts. Um, so, so basically to indicate in here that they want 10% uh, of their gross estate their gross estate for federal estate tax purposes uh, and not just 10% of their um, probate estate. Now, of course, that could wind up taking more of the probate estate or the entire probate estate uh, in, in certain circumstances, but it's uh, going to be closer to what the, the client wants in some cases. All right, so let's change gears here for a while. Do the estates of people who make charitable estate plans grow differently than the general population. You know, you've got somebody that makes a charitable estate plan. Are they more likely to say, well, look, charity's getting it all anyway. I'm just going to quit working. I'm just going to consume it all. It doesn't really matter. Or do those people, are they more likely to continue to grow the estate because it's going somewhere they care about? Uh, and here is, uh, this is using a statistical technique called linear probability modeling. And uh, what we're doing here... Uh, I'm sorry, not, this is not linear probability modeling. This is a, um, HLM, hierarchical uh, linear, linear modeling. And um, what we see here is that there is a different trajectory. So you take two people with the same wealth starting at age 50. One of them has a charitable state plan. One of them doesn't have a charitable state plan. The dashed line is what, on average, we're seeing as the wealth growth trajectory of the person with the charitable estate plan. So what this suggests is that there's a big difference here. After the people have made their plan, charitable estate donors grew their estates 50% to 100% faster than did others with the same initial wealth. So there's a big difference here. Um, now this was not part of this study, but another question comes up, what's driving this? You know, is this 
is what's driving this that you've got people who make this charitable estate plan and because of making the plan they're inspired to uh, accumulate more wealth. Um, I really like that story. You know, I think it's a neat story. Statistical analysis suggests that's not really what's happening, that it's the kind of people who make charitable estate plans are also the kind of people who tend to save and build wealth. Um, but uh, um, regardless, if you are trying to estimate as a charity, what's the value of this uh, gift that this person has made to, uh, to us of 10% of his estate, um, it turns out that if you're using just general estate growth trajectories, you're going to get the number wrong, uh, and you, the number is going to be smaller than um, than you might otherwise think. Okay, so that's uh, a summary of uh, what we know about who makes charitable plans and who makes charitable bequests. Okay, for our last segment tonight, I want to take a look at some statistics on charitable bequest giving. That is, we want to look at some statistics on the uh, uh, people who are leaving charitable bequests and uh, what do demographics uh, tell us about the future projections of uh, this kind of activity. I mean, if you want to study charitable planning, if you want to study planned giving, uh, if you want to be in the industry of planned giving or of giving financial advice for charitable donors, you might want to know what does the future hold for this activity? Are we going to see more charitable bequest giving, less charitable bequest giving? Uh, how much more, how much less, and why? That's what we're going to look at here. Uh, and I'm going to look at some numbers, mostly from the U.S., but I'll, I'll use a few other countries there as an example as well. All right. So we have heard an awful lot about the baby boom. Right? You can't pick up any newspaper without hearing something about the baby boom this, the baby boom that, baby boom generation is getting older, you know, as opposed to other generations, right? I guess that aren't getting older. Um, that uh, the baby boom generation is now uh, getting close to beginning uh, the retirement, and how is that going to dramatically change things? What you don't hear much about is before the baby boom, there was a baby bust, okay? If you take a look at this um, change in live births in the United States, we go back to 1921, and that's somebody who'd be about age, uh, about age uh, 88, um, 88, 89, uh, to 1933, somebody who's about age 76 or 77. During that period of time, we had constant decline in uh, live births, fewer and fewer people being born. Now, this is a big deal because this particular age group, 76 to, uh, to age 90, is a key age group for uh, who is actually generating charitable bequests. Okay? Who generates charitable bequests? Well, charitable people who have wealth who die. Uh, and this is where uh, people with wealth tend to die is within this age segment. So, so what that sets up is this dichotomy where all the news is on, oh, this huge baby boom and you know, what they're going to do for charitable bequests and charitable planning and, and all that sort of thing. But guess what? Before the baby boom, there was the baby bust. And that is what we're living through right now today in terms of who is generating the charitable bequests, uh, who is in that age group. The, the, this uh, 76 to age 90 age group is really important, especially because it turns out, we did some other, study, other studies for other purposes, it turns out that uh, uh, that age of death is responsive to wealth. The wealthier you are, the longer you tend to live. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You can you know, buy more medical things. You can live in more pleasant places, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, but it means that uh, our older, uh, this older segment of population up to age 90, people are in their 80s, for example, late 70s and 80s, that's where the real money comes from. And right now, we're not in the midst of a boom in terms of uh, people who are born during those time periods. Okay, so take a look at this next chart, and this will maybe take you a while to, uh, uh, to uh, interpret, to uh, incorporate here. What we're looking at with each 
block of these numbers is how many people we have alive in the United States within this age segment. Okay, so let's look at the first segment. This is age 50 to age 54. And what you're seeing here is a steady growth. Now, going from left to right within this band is going, uh, is, uh, going uh, one year. So the very leftmost blue portion is how many people were alive in the year 2000 in America. Okay, and then you see the next one, the one next to it is the red bar. That was in 2001, green bar 2002, purple bar 2003, all the way across. So what you see in that, in that age segment of 50 to 54 is this nice, uh, this nice uh, sort of uh, spike taking place. You look at age 55 to 59, same thing. Age 60 to 64, same thing. So we're get, what we're seeing here is we're seeing this baby boom effect, right? That's what everybody's talking about, these spikes that are taking place. Okay? What we're not hearing about is when we get to the age segments that we care about uh, in terms of actually generating bequest dollars for charities, those age segments, like 70 to 74, 75 to 79, do not look like the baby boom segments. They are not spiking up. In fact, what are they doing? Well, they're kind of getting smaller, right? And that relates back to the last slide, which was the baby bust. The reason they're kind of getting smaller is that there wasn't that many of them to start with, okay? So that's why now as we get a little bit older, then the trends change, and that may have to do more with uh, healthcare advances and that sort of thing. But the, the point here is that we have been in recent years experiencing a temporary drop in the key demographic population. But now set that aside. Let's say you're thinking about making a career in the field of uh, planned giving, either uh, raising funds for organizations or advising donors uh, on, on that, uh, uh, administering estates, whatever the case may be. Here on the left-hand side is your future, right? Because on the left-hand side, that's the group that in 10, 15, 20 years is going to be in the middle of the chart. And so we can say right now in terms of bodies that are going to be in this 70 to 79 age group uh, that they're going to get to be more and more. And uh, so we, we certainly do see that we're going to have more, more people in the group and so the trends are, are going to be going up in terms of the amount of, uh, of bequest giving taking place. It wasn't only the United States that experienced this. Here's a chart from the UK showing the same, uh, same basic uh, uh, concept here from 1920 to, looks to be about, uh, what would that be, about 35, something like that, um, a, uh, a significant drop in the number of live births in England and Wales. So a, a baby uh, bust before the uh, post-war baby boom. You can see they're starting at about... 40, um, 43 or so, um, uh, a, a sharp spike for a few years. Uh, and then this same uh, trend for persons alive in the UK, uh, what we see is uh, not as much of the sharp spikes uh, that we, uh, we saw in the, uh, in the US trend, um, but uh, um, at least until you get uh, up, to the, um, up to the older ages. Uh, and this here, what we're projecting, uh, this chart is a little bit different than the last one because in this chart we're actually projecting uh, into the future from 2008 into 2030. Uh, so what does that mean for planned giving? Well, look, if you're looking at the important age groups in the 70s and 80s, you know, we're certainly are going to see some, some very strong trends. Um, but the trends uh, are, are ones that are... Um, um, that are uh, uh, different for the younger ages. Uh, and then for the final example, Ireland uh, population pyramid, um, they actually did not have the large post-war baby boom. Uh, and so theirs is one of the few uh, Western industrialized countries with a population pyramid that is in fact a pyramid rather than being a pig in a python uh, with the huge baby boom uh, group. Okay. 
projecting future bequests. We've just looked at population figures, and that's half the picture, right? Uh, bequests come from people in certain age groups. The more people there are in those age groups, the, the more charitable bequests that we expect. But that's only half the picture. You look at the change in the number of people, but you've also got to look in the, at the change in the tendency of those people to make bequest gifts. So the question is, do boomers give differently? Well, there's some suggestion that they do. And uh, the basic results from the academic studies are that they give less. Okay? Baby boomers give less as compared to previous generations um, who, uh, when you're comparing people of the same wealth and save, same income, baby boomers gave less uh, during their middle age than the pre-war cohort did. Will boomers also give less in estate giving? That's a separate question. Okay, so this is what we looked at. This data is also from the 1996-2006 Health and Retirement Study. Again, it is a nationally representative uh, longitudinal study. People are asked questions every two years. And uh, all the results we're looking at here are weighted to project the national means, and they're adjusted for complex sample selection process. So what do we see? If we're just looking at individuals in that 55 to 65 cohort, uh, or, or 55 to 65 age range, okay? So as we look at each year, these are going to be slightly different groups of people because the older ones are no longer in, the younger ones have now moved up into the, this age group. What we see over uh, the, uh, um, the decade of, of this study is a uh, pretty regular trend of increased charitable estate planning among this age segment. Now, by the way, the reason I'm using this age segment, 55 to 65, it is the immediate pre-retirement age segment uh, but also because I can take the numbers back um, further uh, because the way the survey was originally set up. It didn't have all the over 50 age cohort groups until 1998. Okay, what's causing this? So here's the general trend. We saw the general trend. What's driving it? Let's just look at the difference between the 55 to 65 group in 1996 and in 2006. Where was this group different? And as you can see what I've marked there in red is where we see uh, uh, some cases where we see some dramatic differences in the two groups. The first mark in red is how the 2006 group of people aged 55 to 65 is substantially more educated than the 1996 group of people aged 55 to 65. More likely to have graduate education, more likely to have college uh, diploma, more likely to have some level of college, less likely to be only a high school graduate, uh, and much less likely to have less than a high school education. Okay? So, so that's a big difference. Some difference in assets and income, um, but I don't I don't think those are, I don't, I don't rem, rem, I think those are raw numbers, uh, in which case those differences would be about, about right. Um, okay, what, uh, um, and then the other big difference is number of children and, uh, and number of, of grandchildren. Number of children and number of grandchildren. Uh, in here we see fewer children, fewer grandchildren, more childlessness is taking place there and, and fewer children. All right. Now let's take those two major factors that we saw were different between the two groups, the uh, childlessness uh, and the education, and, and let's see if that makes a difference within the trends. So the dashed lines are the lines of uh, people who have children. Okay. And as you can see, the trend line among both of those dashed lines, that is for people who have children, from 1996 to 2006 is what? Yeah, it's essentially flat. Nothing happening there. All the action is taking place in the solid lines, which are the two groups, either college educated or not college educated, who have no children. So we have two things happening here that are driving this trend. One is that 
people who have no children are more likely over this period of time are becoming more likely to have a charitable estate plan. And second, we have more people moving into the categories of having no children, which bumps them up, and having a college degree, which also bumps them up. So it's what's happening is people shift into the higher categories, and as those categories themselves um, increase over time in terms of their charitable estate planning. Uh, now taking this to a regression um, uh, model, and uh, here we're running a probit analysis because it's a yes-no of uh, whether or not they have a charitable estate plan. Uh, and uh, again, looking at all respondents age 55 to 65, uh, the first column tells us that yes, there is a time trend taking place. In other words, uh, as we've gone from 1996 to 2006, the probability for this uh, for somebody age 55 to 65 to have a charitable estate plan has gone up. We saw that with the general. We find that that time trend actually disappears if we only add two variables. Those two variables are childlessness and years of education. So essentially, all of the change can be explained by the changes in the number of people who are childless and the, number, uh, and the amount of education that people have. So this is the basic relationship. Basic relationship suggests that the overall trend of increased charitable estate planning may have been driven in large part by changes in childlessness and education. So what? Well, here's the so what. If we know why it's been growing over that 10-year period, we can look at those two factors, childlessness and education, and we can project them onto the future by saying, what is the level of childlessness and education going to be of the future generation that will be in this age segment in 10 years, for example? And that allows us to, uh, assuming the relationship holds, to project what kind and level of uh, charitable estate planning there will be in the future. So what do we see? Well, we see a lot more childlessness upcoming uh, in, the, uh, in the upcoming cohorts. Childlessness among women who will be entering the 55 to 65 age group over the next decade will be substantially higher than those in the 55 to 65 age group during 2006. So our trend line for charitable estate planning has been going up, up, up. And what's going to happen to that trend line? It's going to keep going up because we already know that the childlessness of this upcoming group is going to be even greater. Um, and uh, uh, so how do we know that? Uh, for example, here, women in the 56 to 61 age group during 2006, we're looking at a childless rate of about 16%. Uh, back in 1990, when they were in the 40 to 45 age range. The reason we care about where they were in the 40 to 45 age range is we can now look at the current group that's in the 40 to 45 age range, uh, 40 to 44 age range, um, and this is back in 2004. They reported a childlessness rate of 19.3%. So in other words, what you're seeing here is a childlessness rate that is about 20% higher. You move from 16 percentage points to 19.3 percentage points. It's about a, about a 20% relative jump. Um, in, this, uh, in this next age group. So we're going to see more of it, no doubt. We can look at this uh, across uh, other countries. In the UK, we see similar trends in the uh, total fertility rate dropping. Uh, and so uh, we're going to uh, most likely see uh, more childlessness. And then uh, here's another example of a projection of a percentage of childless women by age and year of birth. Uh, in England and Wales, and what we're seeing here as they uh, reach age uh, 45 uh, is um, a, uh, a growing trend uh, from 11% in 87, 12% in 92, 16% in 97, 17% um, in 02, 21% in 07, 22% in 012, uh, or in 12, 23% uh, in 17. Um, so you're getting uh, this um, 
this constant increase that is coming through the pike of childlessness. Upcoming cohorts in education, same basic deal. College education is much more common among the upcoming cohorts of individuals nearing retirement age than among the current 55 to 65 group. Um, in 1996, less than 27% of those in the 35 to 54 age group had at least a bachelor's degree. And here about 10 years later, that had bumped up to 31%. Uh, and so again, relatively speaking, it's more than a 10% jump. Um, you can expect the upcoming cohorts of individuals nearing retirement to be more educated than individuals currently in this same age group. So bottom line, bottom line is we have dramatic growth trends in charitable estate planning. Number one, overall grain in the population. Going to have more old people, right? Uh, the only way around that is, uh, you know, unless there's some uh, giant virus or something, I mean, uh, the uh, demographics are going to have more people who are older. Second, those people are going to have increased proportions of childlessness. Third, those people are going to have increased proportions of education. And so if you are in plan giving or if you are a financial planner, you need to have a basic understanding of plan giving options because more and more of your clients are going to um, have interest in these things. Uh, it is uh, true based on their aging, it is true based on their childlessness, and it's true based on their education. So ultimately, what this suggests is if you want to study plan giving, if you want to study charitable financial planning, the trend lines for the interest in this field are nothing but up. Up in terms of the total population that is going to be in the age ranges, up in terms of the characteristics of that population that drives the charitable estate planning. So that's a long way of saying you're in the right place at the right time in the right class. So study this stuff because it's not only valuable today so you get your grade, but it's going to continue to be valuable and even more valuable throughout your career.